You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep it around for us. So, you downloaded a podcast called Failure. I bet you're wondering what that says about you. I would know because I made a podcast called Failure, and I am definitely wondering what that says about me. This is a show about the side of life we don't talk about, our missteps, mistakes, and misfortunes. I wanted to make a show where I could talk to people who might like and admire about the times they fucked up. Coming in second in a Japanese game show, spending the night in a Guatemalan prison, or that time you took what you thought was a high-powered sports marketing job and it turned out you were a minor league mascot. I want this to be a way to share stories about the most interesting thing about us, our failures. Today you'll hear three stories from the people who brought you the show and the failures that brought them together. Okay, I'll begin. (laughs) That's Lizzie Peabody. If the sound quality is a bit off, it's because I cornered her in her office and demanded that she record this story. All right. So a little over a year ago, I jettisoned everything stable about my life at the same time. I quit my job, my career as a classroom teacher. I quit my boyfriend of eight years. And for the first time in my life, I had no plan. My father says that in times of upheaval, the universe has a way of revealing to us whether we were on the right path. And my job was to listen and watch for a guiding sign. Which sounds great, but I began to find that the universe didn't work on my schedule. So after I spent a summer teaching sailing in Maine, my contract was up, I had no job to return to in the fall, and I found myself at an impasse with no logical next step, sitting in a cafe in coastal Maine with two browser tabs open on my computer. One, a crew-finding website to pair able-bodied sailors with boats headed to faraway places, and the other a radio editing program. Would I be Lizzie Peabody, world sailor and adventurer, or Lizzie Peabody, storyteller and audio producer? And that's when I heard the voice. Are you looking to crew on a boat? I looked over my shoulder and there was this man I'd never seen before. He was short, had this bird-like build, looked to be in his early 30s, and he had a face that I trusted instinctively. I'm sailing from Newfoundland to Cape Cod. My partner just started a grad program and I'm going the rest of the way solo. You want to join? I passed first grade, so I know that you don't get in cars with strangers, but this felt different. What were the odds that he would walk into this cafe in this town in Maine and ask me to sail with him? No, this was my sign delivered to me from the universe, wrapped in a red bow and wearing tevas. If I said no to this, I might regret it for the rest of my life. So I say, coolly, okay. And we decide to go sailing that afternoon so he can test my skills and make sure that I'm up to snuff. A couple hours later, we're standing on the dock, waiting to get a launch ride out to his boat. And as a precaution, I do plug the harbor master's cell phone number into uh, my speed dial, just in case. But everything is off to a great start. We take the launch around the back of his boat, and I see that on the transom of his boat, 
is written Woods Hole, Massachusetts. The transom is the flat back part of the boat. The radio editing program I was considering was called Transom, and it was in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This was just too great a sign. I climb aboard, and right away he has me execute this sailing maneuver, which I do, with panache, and he is very impressed. And we ride this beautiful breeze out into the bay, and I am filled with conviction that I am in the right place at the right time, and I am going to follow the universe's breadcrumbs to my answer. And then the wind dies. It gets very hot and very still. But this gives us a chance to get to know one another a little better. He tells me about his passion for contradancing in the environment. I tell him about my utter lack of direction in my life. And I am proud of myself. I'm congratulating myself for saying yes to the universe and finding myself in this situation where I wouldn't ordinarily be. And as though he can read my mind, he gets this serious look, and he leans in, and he says, How do you feel about being naked? I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's really hot. We should go swimming. How do you feel about being naked? Oh, I'm wearing my bathing suit, I say. I'm, I'm good. Okay. How do you feel about me? being naked. So I'm saying yes to the universe. I'm being open to the unknown. He asked permission. That is good manners. That's polite. And when you think about it, what's really that weird about being naked? Anyway, maybe I'm more close-minded than I thought. And from way out here, no one can even see us. So I say, coolly, go for it. And he does. He takes off his shirt, he takes off his pants, then he lowers his boxers, revealing his sort of scrawny body. And then he turns and he struts to the front of the boat, reaching up to pull the rubber band that binds his greasy brown hair, which tumbles over his thin shoulders. And as he spreads his arms for a dramatic dive off the bow of the boat, it occurs to me he looks exactly like Jesus. As a child, I had one crippling, irrational fear of Jesus. Something about the depiction of the crucifixion haunted me to the point where I had to leave public places if I was with anyone, near anyone, who reminded me of him even a little bit. And my dad was surprisingly indulgent of this fear and told me that probably in a past life someone who resembled Jesus had done me harm and it was important to listen to my instincts about people. And as a result, I managed to avoid most Jesus-like characters for my entire adult life. And here I am on this boat with naked Jesus. So as Jesus climbs out of the water and towels off, I am determined not to let him know anything is amiss because I don't want to make him uncomfortable. I figure there is a reason that the universe has orchestrated this immersion therapy, and I am going to get through it. Naked Jesus tosses his towel aside and goes down below Dick's and gets a guitar. I didn't know Cat Stevens wrote that many songs. The guitar does cover most of his still nude body, but I scan the horizon, scouting for any sign of wind, and I'm congratulating myself for handling this extremely well. This is happening for a reason.
Naked Jesus exhausts his repertoire of Cat Stevens and Quaker folk hymns, puts the guitar down, and he turns to me with another serious look. Is it all right with you if I flirt with you relentlessly? Okay, this is a weird question, admittedly, and I am not at all attracted to Naked Jesus. But it's been eight years since I've flirted with anyone, and the idea of flirting is scary, almost as scary as being this close to Jesus. So I decide I'm going to rip this Band-Aid off, and I'm going to knock these fears out once and for all. So I say, coolly, yeah, you can flirt with me. Right away, he comes opposite me. I'm standing at the wheel. There's no wind, but there's always hope. And right away, he puts his small, leathery hands on mine. And as I'm saying something totally inane, like, are those ropes nylon? His face is looming closer and closer to mine, and I can smell his unwashed hair. And then his lips are on my forehead. He's kissing my forehead, and a lock of his matted hair has fallen into my face, and it brushes against my mouth. And the reality of my situation hits me all at once. This is my worst nightmare. I am stuck on a boat from which I cannot leave with my worst phobia in the flesh. And I've been saying yes to the universe, but this is bullshit. This cannot be the plan. I realize I'm not actually saying yes to the universe. I'm saying yes to a well-trod path that leads to a place I have no desire to go with this man. But we're headed there unless something changes. So taking a leaf out of my college consent handbook, I say, stop. I changed my mind. You can't flirt with me. I'm uncomfortable and I don't want you to touch me. And he says, that's real communication. We're being really real right now. Take me home. I say, I need to get back. It's getting dark. His motor was broken, but it worked in reverse. So we reverse motored back through the bay, back into the harbor, me and tiny, naked, leathery Jesus, slowly, sadly, back to where we'd come. And as we pulled up to the dock, he turns to me for a final time and he says, you're a great sailor. I would love it if you would accompany me on the sail to Cape Cod. And I say, coolly, I'll think about it and I'll let you know. But as I hop off that boat, I know that I will be Lizzie Peabody, audio producer. Do you get where this is going? Not yet? That's okay. This is from a conversation I had with Lizzie after she told her story. Sometimes we do that on the show. Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, I arrived at a point, I was 27, and I felt this overwhelming sense of kind of stagnation and inertia, which had been building over the past couple of years, but I found that I had this life that looked great from the outside. I mean, I was teaching kindergarten in a public charter school. Um, I was sort of building my career as a classroom teacher. I was dating my college boyfriend. We'd met freshman year of college. And there was a big part of my brain that said, you know, like, why can't you just be happy? Why do you keep saying no to happiness? Like, what else could you possibly be looking for? 
So I came down here in October of 2015, and then I first got acquainted with Goat Rodeo in, in November, and I first started with them formally, like producing it, working on a show in like January. So they were, it was an incredibly exciting period of my life. Like I went from feeling like everything was kind of known and dull to feeling like everything was an adventure and a little bit difficult, but I had never felt more alive and I just was radiantly happy. And so it was, it was adequate confirmation that I think I made the right choice. <laughs> I started off thinking that this was gonna be a sign to indicate one thing and in the end, it was a sign to indicate the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe the transom of his boat said Woods Hole, Massachusetts, because it was like, go the other direction. <laughs> Head for Woods Hole. <laughs> that was Lizzie Peabody, Goat Rodeo's principal producer and host of Your Story Here. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. I run an audio network, and invariably that lends itself to people frequently asking me what brought me to my work in podcasting, and to me, that question always sent a certain chill down my spine. That's Ian Enright. He runs this audio network, but you probably already figured that out. I hope that most people find me to be a normal, well-adjusted person, save for two things. The first being an unhealthy obsession with Yolandi Visser, frontwoman for a rap rave group from South Africa called The Antwoord. And the second is the fact that as a matter of habit, I have conversations with a younger version of myself. I don't mean literally, it's a thought experiment. The idea is that if I could talk to myself at a time when I was the most idealistic, the most gung-ho, and the most romantic, and convince him that the man that we are now and the life we're leading is something that he could get behind, then I can have some peace of mind and sleep at night. And so in this thought exercise, 15-year-old me is sitting at the end of our childhood bed, and I'm sitting in a chair across from him, and we just talk. It can be about anything. Our likes, dislikes, family drama, movies, exciting developments in the world of music, explaining dubstep was a fun one. But mostly, it's a frank conversation about what's happening in our lives. I would do this generally when I was going through some pretty big changes in my life as a way to find some footing. But between the years of 22 and 25, those time-traveling conversations were some of the hardest talks I've ever had. Hey, buddy. It's really good to see you. I know. It's crazy, right? I never know how to start these things. That's the hardest part. I, I can generally tell you that the future is pretty awesome. The thing is, though, I need to get pretty serious with you. Nobody's dead or anything. Okay, well, some people are dead, but not the point. The point is, I'm telling you that this is a story about ourselves. I'm going to describe a series of events that are going to be, well, not the easiest thing for us to hear. The first thing you're probably noticing is my hair. And I know our hairline isn't exactly where we'd hoped it'd be either, but I know the real thing you're noticing. It's not an army regulation haircut, so let's talk about that. When we were eight years old, I knew we wanted to be in the military. It was one of the few things we were planning everything around. Simple life plan. Go join up. Have an adventure. Flash forward 40 years or so. Then we die. Life well lived. 
Solid plan, I know. I just want to say for the record that in Ian's ideal life, he dies at 58. And I know you're getting ready for that life. You're working out. You look good, by the way. You're reading books. You're probably watching too many war movies. You're doing all the right things. The things you were supposed to do. Which is why I have to tell you, it's not going to work out. Right now you think there's only two options for college. The United States Military Academy at West Point, the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis. And you can cut all the feigned humility. You don't doubt for a second that we are getting into those schools. Dad, Jopa, Pappy, they all went. Why the hell on earth would you not get in? You're not even going to apply to schools because you feel like it's a waste of time. Don't do that. Apply. Because the first hard truth I'm going to tell you, you're not going to get in to any of them. You're going to walk out to your mailbox one day and you're going to grab two letters. You're going to marvel for a moment that acceptance letters are a lot thinner than you thought. And then you're going to get crushed. You're even going to cancel the party that you had planned celebrating your achievement of getting into those schools. You were really cocky back then. But you don't get in. And it hurts. For the time being, it throws you off that oh-so-solid plan you had. You're shook. And you're upset. But you're resilient in the face of the first major setback in your life. Take a deep breath. It's not the end of the road. Relax, guy. You do manage to apply to other schools. And you actually get into plenty. But you were angry. And you didn't want to go anywhere else. Understandable. It wasn't the plan. You find out that there's this thing called the Corps of Cadets, an old senior military college within Virginia Tech. They wear these old school uniforms, they live in these old school barracks, and they have the old school reputation that suggested that staking your next four years here would do you well to get back on that solid life plan we were so destined for. You tell yourself that it's just a bump in the road, an anecdote on the journey to the life that you were destined for, to the life you're supposed to live. And I know that you're bummed, so I'm going to try and lift your spirits a little bit. So I'll rapid fire some answers your way. Yes, you have done it. More than once even. One time at a party to look cool, you perform a magic trick where you hammer a nail into your face. I've seen this. It's not impressive. It's just disgusting. And it actually works. You drive a classic Mercedes Benz that's as old as you are, and you named him Wilhelm. They come out with this thing called Netflix, and it changes everything. Phones get really cool. A pound sign is now called a hashtag, and everybody really starts caring about a thing called likes and followers. So, I'd like to tell you that it all goes according to plan from there, and that you pass through every hurdle and obstacle, and you find your way to our dream life. Take a deep breath. Near the very end of your college career, you find yourself sitting in the office of a commanding officer. He barges in with his jovial attitude, and he asks you to sit back down. Your heart's racing, and you feel like your insides are in a vice grip, because you already know what he's going to say. You did really well at this school. You loved it, in fact. You worked hard. You beat the standards, and you wrapped almost everything about who you are into this place. But in the early 2010, there was a thing called a government shutdown, and that triggered some automatic cuts in spending and personnel. And the ROTC programs were hit pretty hard by those triggers. Cadets from the Army Department were going to be cut. And your CO re-explains all that back to you. But you aren't listening. And then, he says it. You will not be serving 
in the United States Army. And suddenly you don't know who you are anymore. A lot of not-so-fun things spiral out of this. You lose your girlfriend, the one that you're writing all those poems about right now. You start finding reasons to drink whiskey by yourself. You can't bring yourself to tell your family for months. And you don't ask for help, even though you need it. You feel like you just died, and you think a lot about that too. And I know, you don't believe me, and I'm telling you this for a reason. You thought you picked a simple life. You weren't asking to be a millionaire or a rock star. You just wanted to be G.I. Joe. It was straightforward. You follow these rules, you check these boxes, you go get your dream. But you didn't. You didn't get it, and you failed. And to make matters worse, you're bad at diversifying. All your eggs were crushed when you dropped the one basket that you had. You didn't think you'd be finding a civilian job. So you wind up waiting tables, taking odd jobs. You tell the ones you know and love that this is just some temporary thing, and that once everything else gets sorted out, you'll be back on that path. And you know that's a lie. You can hear people talking about you, that they're concerned. It drives you up a wall. You blame a lot of things. You blame admissions boards. You blame the government. You blame the people around you. Mostly just to hide the fact that you blame yourself. And you find it to be pretty fruitless. And it takes you a while to eventually settle on blaming the universe. That this is the one where you don't get what you want. For the next few years, you find yourself going all sorts of wild paths. And I won't get into them here. You go into politics for a little bit. It's a whole thing. But something happens. At night, you lie awake a lot. You think a lot about how you've ruined your life. How far, far away you've gone from that perfect plan you made. How Ian Enright, army man, is dead. And one night you're thinking long and hard about that. You see, your whole life was tethered to the idea that the universe was fair. That society rewarded people who followed the rules. So why not you? You did all the right things. You checked all the boxes. You didn't get the life you were waiting for. So maybe we're not going to check any more boxes. You ask people you care about to start this ill-advised, risky endeavor in the form of an audio network. Those podcasts you're starting to discover actually wind up being pretty significant. You call it Goat Rodeo. A phrase you learned from your army life. Goat Rodeo. One giant impending failure. Guaranteed excitement and entertainment. And it's scary. And you work harder than you ever have before, which you didn't even think was possible. But it doesn't bother you. Because the weird thing is, when you opened yourself up to a life without boxes to check and a plan to follow, amazing things start happening to you. You work with the most talented people you've ever met. You go on adventure after adventure until one day it strikes you. This is exactly where you want to be. I just want to be clear, when I signed on for this, I didn't know the CEO was a 20-something with an imaginary friend. But enough stalling. Now it's my turn.
After I finished school, I decided I wanted to become a journalist, but it was sort of a last-minute decision, so I didn't have any qualifications. I thought my best chance at getting into the industry was to become the assistant to a journalist, which is how I ended up in Maureen Dowd's office trying to convince her to hire me. For those of you who don't know, Maureen Dowd is an award-winning New York Times columnist, and she was a big name in my house growing up for her commentary during the Bush years. And she's smart and witty and a great writer, basically everything I wanted to be when I grew up. And somehow, years later, I was sitting in her office with an actual shot at working for her. And the interview seemed to be going well. I told her about my job at NPR, but not enough for her to figure out how little I actually did. And I shared with her some pieces I'd written for a blog on drinking sangria to ward off scurvy and tricking my dad into paying attention to me during a baseball game. And she actually liked them. So I left the interview thinking it had gone well. In fact, too well. So well that a week later, Maureen told me that she thought the assistant job would be a bad fit for me because she thought I was ready to be an actual journalist. I wasn't. Somehow, I had talked myself up and out of the one job in journalism I might have been qualified for. And Maureen said she wanted to set up meetings for me with editors at the New York Times. The New York Times, the newspaper that every journalist dreams of writing for, and somehow 1999 Pulitzer Prize winner for commentary slash my personal and professional hero, Maureen Dowd, thought I had a future at the New York Times. And part of me wanted to correct her because I was pretty sure she was wrong, but she was saying all of these really nice things about me, and I wanted her to keep thinking those nice things, and I was pretty sure if I corrected her, she wouldn't. So I didn't. Maureen told me to pitch ideas for a column and a video series, and that she'd set up meetings for me with the head of video and the head of editorial up in New York, and that lots of people got jobs that way. But I was 22 years old, and my dream job was to be someone's assistant. That is not someone with a lot of original ideas. But I did my best, and my best was not good. My video pitch leaned heavily on the millennial angle because youth was all I had. The pitch boiled down to, how do you get millennials to read the newspaper? You make the newspaper a video series about things millennials like starring me, a millennial. Topics included the 90s, free concerts, Brooklyn, free concerts in Brooklyn. Like I said, the pitch was not good. Now, to cope with the situation in which someone I'd admired for most of my life had what felt like an undeservedly high opinion of me, I spent the end of that summer reading a lot of internet think pieces on the imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is this thing where people feel like they aren't qualified for the jobs or the opportunities that they're given, and that sooner or later, the rest of the world will find out. And that perfectly describes how I feel about all of these meetings. So I convince myself, maybe it's not that I'm unqualified. Maybe I'm suffering from imposter syndrome. 
I mean, Maureen Dowd believes in me, and she has a Pulitzer, so maybe a 22-year-old does deserve to have her own video series and weekly column in the New York Times. On the train ride up to New York, I'm thinking about my imposter syndrome and trying to psych myself up for these meetings, and as we go past Baltimore, this little voice in my head says, but why would the New York Times hire you? You didn't even write for your college newspaper. And I say, no, you focused on your studies. 1991 Breakthrough Award winner slash your personal and professional girl crush Maureen Dowd said she thought your research on the Northern Ireland women's prisons protests was interesting. And then as we're going past Philly, that little voice says, but you don't have any on-camera experience. And I say, that's not true. You were a backup dancer in your college dorms, teach me how to Dougie, music video parody, teach me how to bunny, and it was very well received. And then we're pulling into Penn Station and the voice says, but you're just a temp at NPR. You don't even do journalism. You're just in a marketing group and it's not even the main marketing group. And I say, not true. 1991 Pulitzer Prize finalist for reporting slash goddess incarnate Maureen Dowd said you have broadcast experience. And I arrive at the office building and I'm escorted up to meet the head of video content who also happens to be the third highest ranking member of the editorial staff at the New York Times. And we introduce ourselves and he says, Kaylin, it's so nice to meet you. Maureen has said so many wonderful things about you. And in my head, I'm like, oh, my God. Author of Are Men Necessary slash American Treasure Maureen Dowd is saying nice things about me to other people? And then he says, and I read your pitch, and I think you have some good ideas. And I think, of course, the 90s have universal appeal. And I start to think maybe Maureen Dowd was right. Maybe I do belong here. And just as I think I've conquered my imposter syndrome, the editor takes a pause and he looks kind of confused and he says, but the thing is, you don't have any video experience. And that voice I thought I'd silenced on the train says, see? And my imposter syndrome house of cards comes crumbling down around me, and I realize I'm not going to get this job. In fact, I will be very surprised if I get any job, which is upsetting because all I wanted was an assistant job, and they won't even let me have that. And after the meeting's over, I go back to the Algonquin Hotel where my boyfriend at the time had booked me a room because he, like Maureen Dowd, had an unwarranted belief in my ability And I'm sitting in this historic hotel where The New Yorker was founded and Dorothy Parker had lunch every day, and I realize I don't belong here. I don't have imposter syndrome. I'm just genuinely unqualified. And that voice in my head that I silenced that I thought was self-doubt was actually self-awareness. Why aren't there more internet think pieces about being an imposter syndrome imposter? And the worst part is usually when you don't get a job, at least there's this feeling of like, well, like I'll show them and they don't know what they're missing. But I couldn't even feel indignant. I just felt like, well, they accurately assessed my abilities and potential. Like they definitely made the right call on that one. 
And when I get back to D.C., I'll have to tell all these people who believed in me, including 1996 Glamour Woman of the Year slash my real-life fairy godmother Maureen Dowd that if this was my shot, I blew it. And that's the most depressing thought of all. So sitting there in the Algonquin Hotel, I asked myself, what would Dorothy Parker do? And I decide that Dorothy Parker would definitely get drunk in this hotel lobby. So I order a $20 cocktail because New York is the worst. And that's what I do. I kept going up to New York for meetings for the rest of that fall, and if anything, they just get worse because I've cured my imposter-imposter syndrome, so going into these meetings, I know I'm not qualified, and the people I'm meeting with know I'm not qualified, but out of a sense of obligation, we both have to pretend to gradually come to that conclusion during the meeting and not before. And it was crushing, not so much because I wasn't going to get a job, which I'd already resigned myself to, but because a few months ago, Maureen Dowd, the person I wanted to be when I grew up, thought I was special. And with each meeting, I could feel myself chipping away at that illusion. By the end of that fall, it had become clear to everyone, I think, including Maureen, that I was not going to talk myself into a job. But she gave me one last piece of advice, and that was to keep writing. So I did. At first, that was pieces I wrote for blogs like the ones I shared with her. And later, that became writing stories that I performed on stage at shows here in D.C. And Ian, who you heard from earlier, saw one of those shows. And he reached out to me to ask whether I'd considered doing anything in audio because he thought I had potential. And this time, I believed it. As we were developing this show, I realized so many of the stories that I told on stage were about failures like this one, because those stories are the most fun to tell. And by sharing them, our failures become a little less scary, which is how I ended up here, talking to you. That was it. That was failure. I hope you liked it. I hope you'll share it. This season will feature more stories like these, each episode exploring a different type of failure, like on our next episode. Wow, Donald, it must be hard eating bagels, you know, with all that blood on your hands. I hope you'll show up for the next episode, and the one after that, and the one after that. I'd like to give a special thanks to Lizzie and Ian for sharing their stories and to everyone on the Goat Rodeo team and to Kate Connolly for letting me record this in her closet. I'm Kate Riley, and this is Failure. Keep an ear out for us.